I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This week on Routine Checkup, we speak with Dr. Chris Van Tulliken, an infectious disease doctor at UCLH. We talk to him about his new book, Ultra Process People. This is going to be hella interesting, fellas. Uh, Super. I think, I think right up your alley too, right now, Tay. Very much in line with what I'm with my my current uh, lane of curiosity. Yeah, we are uh, we are sitting down with Doctor Chris Van Tulliken. Did I get the the last name pronounced right there? You did. You did it perfectly. I'm not fussy, but that is yeah. You, you nailed it. I mean, it's Dutch. I I don't pronounce it correctly myself. <laughs> Splendid, uh, Chris. You're a, you're an infectious uh, an infectious disease doctor at UCLH. Uh, you're actually in your your office right now. Um, uh, he's also a, a a prominent BBC science presenter, uh, known for his commitment to public health advocacy and his unique self experimentation approach to science, which we're definitely going to be getting into. Um, and Chris is also, um, his new book, Ultra Process People, is a profound exploration of our relationship with processed foods. And uh, we're going to be diving into that book, uh, which I'm super curious to do. Um, before we do, though, Chris, uh, first of all, take a second, say hello, give us maybe a little bit of insight into who Chris is outside of what I just said there. How did you, you know, how do you find yourself? Uh, in a position as a infectious disease doctor, but also someone who is presenting science on the BBC, writing books, you know, inspiring other series, all that kind of stuff. How do you, how do you, are you how, asking, how? are you asking like, what business do I, an infection doctor have writing about food and nutrition? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who do you think yeah. you are? Yeah. Really? Yeah. It would be the implication of charlatanism and fraud. Um, so uh, I, I'm, I'm a infectious disease specialist. So as, as in the early part of my career, I spent a lot of time in low-income countries in Myanmar, in Central and West Africa, and in Pakistan, in South Asia. And I treated um, or failed to treat a lot of children who were very sick because of predatory marketing of baby food and infant formula mm. by the companies that make all our food today. So there's a, it's, there's a very small number of food companies. And so my research went from kind of very biochemical molecular virology to studying how corporations affect human health in in good ways and in bad ways. Mainly in bad, I mean, spoiler alert, it's bad ways that right. there are some ways they they help us, but the, the bad ways are the more interesting things to because they're problems to be solved. So that is how I arrived here. Is that an adequate biography? I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, is that a I, dog? I, that was just, I was trying to talk about the commercial determinants of health. And, and now you got, a, you got a dog on the table right in your yeah. face. Yeah, yeah, this is a it's donut. He's, he's, uh, he's very curious. He'll, speaking of, he'll settle and sit down. Speaking of ultra processed food. He yeah, fucking loves ultra processed yeah. food. Let me tell you that right now. <laughs> Chris, I, 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 so I, 
I think the, uh, the the big question that that I wanted to ask like right off the start of this conversation is like is processed food processed processed food is this mm. term that I think I mean anybody and everybody at least in the Western world is is like is very attuned to or, or, or sorry they know the word they've heard the term mm. yeah. a thousand mm. times over but and 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 my understand like I I actually don't. No, I don't know exactly the definition of a processed food. My my brain goes processed bad, and that's that's as far as it goes. Like, what is a processed food? What makes a food processed? And I I think the question is more: What isn't processed? (laughs) Yeah, maybe maybe that is a better question. Well, I can help with this because I spent some time uh, writing the book, uh, figuring all this out. So, processed food we've had anxieties about for a very long time, but processing of all food is extremely important. Humans are what we call obligate processivals. We must process our food. We've been doing it for way over a million years. Um, so when someone first cut a piece of meat off a mammoth, that's to some extent processing. When they cook that meat, that's definitely processing. And mainly female scientists in huts and domestic kitchens for many hundreds of millennia have been grinding and extruding and extracting and recombining different molecules from different foods for for a very long time. And it shaped our bodies. So humans have tiny teeth, tiny jaws, and very, very small digestive tracts compared to, for example, a pig of the same size or another primate of the same size. We, we, we have extended our digestive tract outside of our bodies. So we have to process food. So there's this tiny number of foods you can eat whole and raw, which is maybe like oysters, a bit of fruit, uh, some mushrooms, there's not much. Cat milk, you can squeeze the milk out of the cow and have it whole and raw. You shouldn't do that because you'll get brucellosis amongst other problems, but you can. Um, then you can process that whole raw food. So you can take that milk and you can process it into butter, for example. And we know humans have been making butter for at least 8,000 years. So we've got shards of pottery from the northern Sahara Desert, which used to be much greener and more fertile. And there was dairying happening there, you know, seven, eight millennia ago. Then you can ultra-processed food. And ultra-processing is the subject of the book. And ultra-processed food is the stuff that, oh, I mean, we're all the same generation roughly. I'm flattering myself, I think. But um, <laughs> our, our parents all nagged us, nagged us about, ultra, about processed food when we were kids. And what they meant was ultra-processed food. Mm. But in 2010, a, a team in Brazil created this formal scientific definition. So it's not a casual term. It's not like junk food or processed food. Ultra-processed food has a very specific definition. It's recognized by the United Nations and huge numbers of research groups at places like Harvard and Cambridge and Oxford and um, UCL where I work. So this is a a well-recognized, well-studied definition. It boils down to this. If it's wrapped in plastic and it contains an additive you don't find in your kitchen at home, like an emulsifier or xanthan gum or an artificial sweetener, then it is ultra-processed food. And so that's the category of interest, and it was the category was defined to try and work out the type of food that was driving diet-related disease. Mm-hmm. Right, right. You, you, you mentioned is that a um, thorough enough answer? Sorry, I know I have yeah, to let you no, talk. Very, it's no, great. beautiful, yeah. very, very thorough. And uh, and you mentioned emulsifiers, and I know there's a part in the book where you talk about um, your daughter's ice cream, and you talk a little bit about uh, emulsifiers used um, versus eggs. And mm. how emulsifiers can be much cheaper, 
and the eggs are are less expensive. Can you can you talk a little bit about that analogy and like why a company would use an emulsifier versus using um, an egg, and then what that ends up doing to the human body? So the thing to remember about uh, the, at the heart of this book is a really simple idea. It's that food made by companies who are owned by pension funds will affect your body in a different way to food made by someone who loves you and wants to nourish you. Mm. And so the logic, one of the parts of the long formal definition of ultra processed food is its purpose is profit. Its purpose is not nutrition. And that has to be its profit because it's made by companies that are legally obliged to generate money and financialized growth for governments, for pension funds, for asset managers, for private individuals. So um, the logic of the emulsifier is if you're making ice cream, and there will be people listening to this that have had the dream of setting up an ice cream company. And they, you know, I have a friend who tried to do this. They started making ice cream. And ice cream is just milk and eggs and cream, maybe a bit of butter and some flavoring and a bit of sugar. And that you whip it into a foam and you freeze it while you whip it. And that's what ice cream is. Now, the problem with eggs is they're incredibly expensive. You have to grow chickens and get the eggs and crack the eggs and make sure the whole thing doesn't become contaminated with salmonella. You have to use raw egg in ice cream. You can't pasteurize the egg or it turns into a different kind of protein that isn't an emulsification agent. So egg yolks are emulsifiers, by the way. They're not, chemically they are. What's much cheaper is to use uh, tartaric acid esters of mono and diglycerides of fatty acids instead of egg yolk. It doesn't have salmonella. It's incredibly cheap. You don't have to grow and feed a chicken. And if you can use some palm stearin, palm fat, instead of dairy fat, I mean, dairy fat, you have to grow a cow, feed it grass or soy, milk the cow, store the milk. You've got all the E. coli bacterial contamination again. Hugely expensive. Grow a palm tree, wring the oil out of the nuts, refine it, bleach it, deodorize it, interesterify it, and hydrogenate it, and you have a pretty good butter substitute. won't be very healthy for you, but it works quite well. So the logic is always when you're, if you're a transnational food corporation answerable to a big asset management manager, the problem is always how can we replace the expensive stuff with the cheapest possible stuff and ex- extend shelf life and also sell more to the Canadian people year in, year out because we have enough food in Canada, right? So the, the only way of making, of generating growth is to sell us more food than we need constantly. Mm-hmm. And so the food has been gradually reformulated so that it's been become, some listeners won't recognize this. Other people will have a very powerful experience of this. And, and I certainly do that. They have an addicted relationship with many of these products. They 100%. can't stop eating it. So mm-hmm. if you make ice cream, you can go and make ice cream at home and you can definitely gain weight eating homemade ice cream. But your body fundamentally will interact with the molecules in homemade ice cream and you have a system inside you that will say, I'm full now, I'm done, we can knock this on the head, I, I'm not going to eat the whole tub. It's very hard to stop eating the pint tub of ice cream once you've opened mm-hmm. it, whatever whatever your brand of choice is. And that's not an accident. That is a very careful construction of salts, fats, sugars, emulsifiers, um, and the other additives that make it hard to stop eating. Right. Why? There, there was there was something else in your book that really kind of um, it, it just like it, it, it sort of widened my eyes for, for a moment because I never really thought about food in this way. Um, and it was the it was it was the bit uh, about talking about how like ultra processed foods are pre chewed. And there was this study back in the 70s with apples. It was like mm. it was like apples, apple juice and like apple puree. 
And yeah. it, it was that really, it really kind of like stood out to me like, oh, fuck. Wow. Like our bodies. <laughs> we like to swear. Our bodies are very much FYI. like specifically Shh. sort of e- evolved for this thing, this, this one sweet, delicious thing, which is an apple. But then when you take that apple and you alter it, process it in this like very, what seems very simple way. Yeah. Our, it, it fucking messes our body right up. Like our body just goes, I don't know what to do. Well, with it. Or, can you, can you kind of like it, give us a little bit of an explanation of what that study was? So, so um, the way we all think about food, insofar as the listeners think about food at all, the way I learned to think about food at medical school is an apple is simply an amount of water, a small amount of salt and some sugar and some vitamins. That's, and it keeps so the doctor apple, away, right? Like, it's like just, right. one apple, it's, it, I don't have to look at yeah. your face. Yeah. An apple is just the sum of its component parts. A cheeseburger is a proportion of protein, fat, carbohydrate, and uh, some micronutrients. Yeah. And this is the way we think about our food, just a list of, of ingredients and quite a small number of ingredients. We don't, we don't consider the phytochemicals in the plants or anything. But we know that the structure of food is important. So um, when, and this this isn't ultra processing the apple, but if you eat a whole apple, uh, it spikes your blood sugar a lot less and it leaves you feeling fuller than if you blend that apple into a juice and drink it. Um, And this is not rocket science. And this was established in the 70s. Ultra processed food has been put through such an extreme version of that blending Mm. because food is deconstructed into its component molecules, essentially, that our bodies really interact with it in an entirely different way. So the the softness, a really nice example, I think, of the way that softness affects us is that we think of ultra processed food, whether we're thinking of, uh, of the, the, you know, nat- nacho chips covered in flavorings or burgers or fries or pizza or ice cream or supermarket bread or our breakfast cereal, it's all incredibly soft. Some of it crunches or has a little slippiness or some dryness. It's got different textures, but there's a universal softness. Now, this softness means we don't chew it. And this starts from very early on in life. We feed our kids from pouches. um, They they eat these purees. And so human jaws have been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And they're now too small for our teeth. So I don't know. Have any of you worn braces? Any of you worn orthodontic braces? Right. So I have. Almost all of us have. Most of us have had impacted wisdom teeth taken out because our jaws and our faces are too small for our teeth. And we've measured, this has been really robustly measured. So our soft diet is shrinking our faces. The softness also means we eat food very quickly. So if you you go and buy a loaf of real bread, which is maybe quite hard to get for, real bread is quite inaccessible for many people. It's up to 10 times more expensive than most bread. If you compare rye bread or sour bread, the speed at which you eat it compared to the supermarket bread, which will be full of emulsifiers and is very, very soft, you can eat it. Um, you can eat the supermarket bread about three times as fast. Right. Calories are getting into your body faster than those hormones and nerve signals can can respond and say, "Okay, I've had enough now." So th- this this thing we've neglected in nutrition science for. In, in, entirely in terms of public health, the matrix of food, uh, we now understand is increasingly important. And um, that's why eating whole food is really good for us. It's because we we have to deconstruct the matrix. That, that really fucks me up because uh, I eat, um, like my number one most consumed food is supermarket bread. 
and mm. Dude, and I so much bread. and I put butter on it to Dude, like this make guy, it soft. This guy ate like fuck nine bagels the other day, like <laughs> like in a row, just <laughs> but, one sitting. It's, it's more so, and and you know it's fu- interesting. Chris, Chris is, is like, disgusting. Bro. <laughs> no, Look he at is, him. He is. But, uh, thank you. I didn't realize. Be, I, if I'd known this, I would never have gone on this call. <laughs> but the, the, the thing is that I like I I I consider myself to be a generally pretty healthy person yeah. and have like a fairly healthy diet. Except now I'm realizing that it, it, it's cra- the addiction to bread yeah. that I feel too is yeah. like I need to have it every day, and in one sitting I'll put two pieces of toaster in the but toaster, hold, but pop on, it up, Bri. eat it, another two in, pop it up, eat it, and another two, and do six in a setting. But hold on, Brian, you're going, you're going. I think you're jumping. I think you're jumping ahead because I don't. I don't think we've really. I don't think we've really learned yet why that's bad. Like you're, you're like, cause yeah, you, let's not cause shame you, you just yet. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. yes. Cause you're, cause you, cause you, cause you said, so why should I you, feel you, shame? You, you, you know, you've said like, Oh, it's, it's the softer food. We're getting the, the, the method of delivery is basically changed because we've ultra processed these foods. They're softer. We're intaking, we're, we're delivering the components of the food, the carbs, the fat, the, um, uh, the fibers, the proteins and everything at a rate at which we are not evolved really to do. Why is that not good? So, so that's, that's a very profound question. You could stop your question with why is that the food? So your bread is soft, not by an accident, not because the cheap way to make it is to make it soft, but because soft bread sells because it becomes addictive. I mean, the, the problem mm. is not you. And, and I joke about stigma. If there's only one thing I want people to take away from the book, it is to reduce stigma around food and weight and diet-related disease. Mm. The, mm-hmm. the problem really is the food. It, it is not us. It's not a question of personal responsibility. So the, mm. the, the companies in the, in the 50s and the 60s, when this bread was starting to be mass-produced, perhaps even earlier in some cases, they didn't go, we're going to get everyone addicted to bread. They formulated two or three types of bread, but one bread, the little softer one, sold a bit better. Now, that iteration, that process of going through the focus group, whether it's your cereal or your bread, loads of people I interviewed, because I went and spoke to people in the food industry, lovely people who were incredibly generous with their time, and explained whether it's bread or breakfast cereal, it's put through a tasting panel. And one of the things that people measure every year for the last 50, 60, 70 years is how much do people eat? And so your bread, which we think of as being benign, even when it's bread, it's brown, it's full of seeds, has been through hundreds of tasting panels to be perfected into this thing that you can eat 10 slices of at a single sitting and yeah. still feel hungry. Yeah. So it, it, the, the shame that we all feel about this, mm. and you know, you consider yourself, a, we, we, there is something about being male, being a particular age and build, we can sort of laugh at ourselves. There are many people who have that experience with the bread who are living with significant rates of, of obesity who feel a privately incredible self-shame mm-hmm. that that is the thing i kind of want to interrupt w- with this book that uh, the, the food is engineered to be over consumed mm-hmm. i've uh, i've got a question about um i guess about, about the delivery mechanism which i think is really important in this question in terms of like how an ultra processed food is going to is going to how your body's going to like uptake those um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, I dodged that. I, I answered the question I wanted to answer, not actually your question. <laughs> no, no, that's no, that's okay because because I've kind of ha- I've had this I've had this question in in the chamber. So like I, I haven't read your book yet, and it's 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 next in line after I'm done reading 
what I'm reading now, which is a book by Peter Atia. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all. He's- yeah, yeah. In fact, Peter Atia is mentioned in my book because he was he set up a series of very important experiments. Yeah. Ooh. Great. You know what? I would love to hear you on his podcast because Ooh. I'm sure that he would pick your brain in a way that I just cannot. <laughs> um, and so so one of the things that's in that he talks about in his book, I mean, he goes through a range of things. And I guess if you were going to boil down his book to two major components, it would be like really the, the, like the major impact of diet and exercise. And he puts, he puts exercise underneath, he, it, uh, underneath, um, nutrition. So he's in the sense that he's putting exercise as the foundation of the pyramid, um, towards like a healthy lifestyle and ultimately longevity. And that of yet that yes you want to be eating healthy and that is something that you want to have on top of your exercise foundational base of of healthy active lifestyle longevity whatever but that really as if you are exercising your body is going to is going to chew through those nutrients in a way that even if the nutrients aren't of the best quality the exercise is going to kind of like it's going to kind of make up for a lot of the lost quality in our food do you have any like insight into into that i mean i I, and i understand that we're talking about food in the swath of a major amount of a a major swath of the population that is facing obesity uh, insulin resistance, type, diabetes, and, and and then in countries also that just like don't have access to a lot of the different resources that we have. So I'm just kind of like tossing that out there. I'm kind of just like throwing that at you and seeing what you think. <laughs> so let me let me let me make sure I understand the question because I think there's some really interesting propositions there for a long and healthy life. Where do I rank diet versus exercise in a hierarchy, and then? If an individual is doing something, what you know? How does diet interact with exercise? Is that yeah, is that? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I suppose there are two. So Peter T and I approach this maybe in slightly different ways because I have very little interest in telling fundamentally wealthy, educated people how to become even healthier. Mm-hmm. Now that's not to critique. Peter or um, any of the people he's worked with or, or the, the sort of industry around that, because, you know, I consume that industry. I'm a, you know, not wealthy, but I'm I'm an educated middle-class person. I'm a physician and I consume that stuff and I'm quite interested in it selfishly. My interest as a broadcaster and as a writer is going, the structure of the world around us is inherently violent and it generates enormous inequality. Mm-hmm. And so advising people how to become even healthier and stronger and more powerful and live longer because that advice is only available to essentially rich people. I'm, I'm uh, that sort of microscopic. Here's how to live, live better and longer. I'm, I'm, I don't know. We have the evidence to say that to people. Um, So my view is exercise is incredibly important, but what there's a whole chapter in my book. When I was writing my book, the problem, one of the things nagging at the back of my head was, if I'm writing about weight and, and, and a crisis of obesity, and that's only one of the problems I'm writing about, but that's where most of the evidence is. And that's honestly, that's why everyone buys a book about diet because they because we're all living with over excess weight. How much is food important, which is the subject of my book, and how much am I not writing about this other big area, like we're all doing less? Mm-hmm. And the astounding thing is the science 
is absolutely crystal clear that when we do more, we do more exercise, we move around more. In fact, let me frame this in a more extreme way. If you three, instead of being um, living fundamentally sedentary lifestyles as people in the global north, and, and this is me too, you know, we, we, we more or less sit around doing stuff all day. If, if the four of us moved to Tanzania and lived as hunter-gatherers, mm. hunting antelope, uh, walking 10 to 15 miles every day, the number of calories that we burn every day would not change at all. Mm. We've done it with Chicago secretarial workers compared to Nigerian subsistence farmers. There's no wow. difference in calories burned. You could mm -hmm. go and be uh, a coal miner in Bolivia at altitude. You would not burn any more calories. The amount of activity that you do does not shift the calories you burn. And this is such a counterintuitive um, mm. uh, a, a thought that it really kind of troubled me writing the book. But so th there's, a, but however, the science around this is, I can talk about it, is it's incredibly robust and it's very widely agreed on by most people now. So in terms of if you're someone who's living with excess weight and you want to lose weight, exercise is incredibly good for you, but it will not help you lose the weight. In fact, it may, may even um, be associated with weight gain for some people. So that, that's my headline understanding of the, of the science Exercise is really, really good for people. Um, and doing 150 minutes a week minimum is great. Beyond that, um, I think people should need need to sort of find their own specific way of doing it. I, I to me, the, the tragedy is that people are so hemmed in by their environment. I have real discomfort saying, you know, avoid ultra-processed food, do more exercise, yeah. because the structure of people's contracts, their lives, their leisure time, which of which they have none, the way they're paid – means that they they can't do it hold on hold on Brad. I, I, I'm, I'm super interested in, in the science behind science behind that like how can how can how could you go you, to could, yeah, tanzania and yeah. walk 10 miles in a day and not burn more calories here's how right. it works your body expends around 3,000 calories per day I, I can't see and weigh you but roughly we're men of you know uh, a certain age so so that's roughly what we're all burning mm -hmm. um if you walk 10 miles a day, you still burn 3,000 calories. You have less energy to spend on anxiety, on inflammation, and on reproduction, on reproductive hormones. So you steal energy from those budgets and pay it into exercise. The total number, total amount of energy doesn't change. And so what that means is when you sit around all day, as we do in the, in the global north, um, you spend your energy money on being inflamed, on being anxious, and on having very high levels of hormones that we think are carcinogenic. So if you go and measure testosterone in Hadza hunter-gatherers, you know, traditionally very masculine men, they're very muscular, they're very fertile, but they will have lower levels of testosterone, which is mm. healthy for them. So we think of testosterone as this kind of good thing. High levels of testosterone are probably pretty bad for us. So exercise is good for us because it takes energy away from these systems that that um, are bad for us. And the, the evolutionary explanation for this boils down basically to, in times of scarcity, it would be a disaster if we burned more calories working harder to get scarce food or hunt game that was further away. And so instead, when food is scarce, you don't change your calorific needs, you steal from your reproductive system. And that's fine because you probably don't want to be having a baby at a time when food is scarce or you steal from your immune system and you can pay that back later. Mm. So um, that's why exercise is good for us, but it's why it won't help you lose weight. Right. Does that hang together scientifically? Yeah. I mean, like I'm kind of trying to think about it in terms of 
in terms of I mean, I know I know that as you become more fit with exercise, in particular like cardio cardio focused exercise, swimming, biking, running, that you basically train your body to more efficiently use fat as a fuel source rather than um rather than glucose. Um and and so I I guess I'm kind of imagining that as I mean, I know as a cyclist that the more I train, the more I can feel my body while I'm exercising using fuel, mm. more using fuel mm. more efficiently. My body is noticeably more efficient as I get fitter. So I guess, I guess what I'm hearing you say in my lack of scientific understanding is if you are in an environment where you are like, say like using this example of, of somebody hunter gathering in Tanzania versus, you know, working at an office, an office job where you are on a computer eight hours a day, that your body is figuring out with a, through efficiency, how to use the same amount of calories for two very extremely different functions. Yes, that I think you've basically nailed it. And the, but the, the head, I mean, there's these extreme examples. So I, you know, I've been to the Arctic and done long skiing expeditions. If you've done very intense cycling, you can shift the calories burned a little bit uh, in a short period of time, but over a year or over, a, you know, over a month, you can't change the average. Basically, the calories you burn per day are to do with your body composition, your age, and your sex. Mm. That's fascinating. That, that is that, that's that is absolutely yeah. fascinating. And that's this is if people want to read more about that. There's a, a scientist called Herman Ponzer. Um, who is an incredibly well-regarded scientist at, at Duke, and he is synth- he's brought together evidence from two decades of double-labeled water studies, metabolic research, and he's done it in animals. He's done it in zoo animals versus wild animals. This holds across nature, across all species. Cool. It's incredibly robust, and it's a threat to the food industry. So the the really interesting thing for for me in the book was going, but there are all these scientific papers. That say that if we do exercise, we burn more calories. So it's right, yeah. it, there's this these two bits of literature. Hmm. Almost every single paper that says that exercise makes you burn more calories was funded by Coca-Cola. The exercise is medicine program in the states, a public health program in the national public health program uh, with the American College of Sports Medicine, funded by Coca-Cola. Uh, there was a global energy balance network funded by Coca-Cola. All the messaging around. You know, you go for it. all the, you know, Coca-Cola sponsor the, um, you know, huge sporting events, certainly in, in Europe they do. And I'm pretty sure in, in the States and Canada too. Um, the, the, there's this idea that when you go to the gym, you burn calories and then you can, you know, replace those calories, the energy with, and it's all yeah. enti- entirely false. So there's this lovely story in the book that for me was really intriguing of going this big gap. In, and I've got to say, like, if you're feeling whiplash with this information, you know, I had spent six years at medical school learning exactly that when you burn, ca- when you do exercise, yeah. you burn calories. Yeah. So it's it's whiplash for all of us. The reason we don't all think of our bodies that way is because the food industry publishes research that is demonstrably false, saying the contrary. Yeah. What was the name of uh, what was the name of that uh, person at at Duke? Herman Ponser and uh, Amy Duke. Um, uh, um, Amy Luke, forgive me, is another really important. She she was one of the first people to um, to kind of figure this out, and Herman's kind of brought it all together. But this is now widely agreed on by the sort of leading figures in the field, like Kevin Hall and mm. um, colleagues of mine at Cambridge. Um, you know, th- this is 
this isn't really up for discussion. So in other words, if you are living with obesity or you're living with overweight and you want to lose weight, exercise, super good for you, will not help you lose weight. You, you, diet is is diet is the only thing driving pandemic obesity. Right. Our sedentary lifestyles are terrible for us. They're shit, but they're not what's making us gain weight. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I, uh, I'm, I'm dying to kind of dive into the economic factors mm-hmm. that play into all this. But before we do, there's one thing that we haven't like actually mentioned, which I think is, I think is really, really interesting. And I'd love to get your, like your, your take on, on this, Chris, but in the, for writing the book, you spent a month eating a, a diet of 80% uh, of, of ultra processed foods. Um, how like before doing that, um, I guess after doing that, how did that change your perspective on ultra processed foods, if at all? Or like, what was like one thing that stuck out to you that you learned while doing this process? And why? So, like, why do that? Why do that for, like to yourself? So it wasn't just a supersize me stunt. It was mm. the I was the pilot patient in a big research study that we're now conducting at UCL. So I partnered with my colleagues in the obesity and endocrinology department. And we wanted to just see if we did this, if, if um, we, we were replicating a study that had been done in a lab and we wanted to do it out in the real world. And that's what we're doing. So um, I would eat, so I had a six week flush of no ultra processed food. And then for a month, I got 80% of my calories from, from UPF. Now, this is a typical diet for a Canadian teenager. It's a pretty normal diet for a Canadian adult, probably one in four, one in five people in Canada get 80% of their calories from UPF. So um, I ate this for a month. It wasn't supersized me. I wasn't force feeding myself. I was just eating when and as I feel like it was ad libitum, we call it. Um, and four things happened. I gained a huge amount of weight. I gained so much my, my body weight would have doubled if I'd continued for a year. Um, the second thing that happened is when we met, so I can fake that, right? So you listeners may be going, well, sure, but he could force feed himself just to make the point. That's a valid point. I wasn't doing it, but you know, you'd have to trust me. At the end of the diet, though, we measured my physiological response to a standard meal. So we measured what happened to my hunger hormones um, and my satiety hormones. And at the end of a standard meal, um, my hunger hormones remained sky high and my satiety hormones didn't respond. So this is food that is undermining the evolved mechanisms that regulate our calorific intake. The third thing that happened was we did a brain scan. Now, I'm just one patient. But we did this in partnership with our National Neurology Hospital um, uh, colleagues there. Uh, so a, a very good friend of mine is a professor of, of uh, um, magnetic resonance physics and neurology. We saw huge increases in connectivity between the back of my brain, the habit, automatic behavior bits, and the, the bits right in the middle, the reward and addiction bits. Yeah, and those yeah. effects were very robust. They weren't noise. But the fourth thing that happened was the most interesting thing. And I, there's, it's a kind of a crucial moment in the book because this is what I want to give the reader. 
the the proposal in the book is that we've all we're all part of an experiment that we didn't volunteer for, right? So you're eating your bread, and um, and the bread is full of these additives and flavorings and emulsifiers that you're taking a big risk with your body. The companies who make your bread are getting all the benefits of this experiment. My proposal to the reader is to eat the food while they read the book. Don't try and quit. Mm. Just eat along. You're eating it anyway. Eat the chips. Eat the bread. Eat the spreads and the condiments. And you may find that what happens to you is what happened to me. So I was speaking to a scientist called Fernanda Rauber in Brazil. She's part of the team that did the early work on creating the definition of ultra-processed food. And we were collaborating scientifically, so we were designing a study. And she, every time I said the food, she would correct me and go, no, it's not food. It's an industrially produced edible substance. It's not food. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was annoying. It was, it was like a tick. She kept mm-hmm. doing it. Anyway, I hung up, went to order an ultra-processed dinner, ordered my favorite fried chicken wings um, with all this sauce, you can imagine the brand, and I was unable to eat the meal. She'd made it disgusting for me. And there is our relationship with this food is um, one of addiction, but addiction and love of something can very quickly turn to disgust. And so she gave me this gift. It was like I suddenly was like, oh, wow, I'm addicted and I can't eat it. And so this is like the Alan Carr method of quitting smoking. You know, this book, huge international bestseller. And it's recommended by the World Health Organization because it works so well if you can engage with an addictive substance whilst you learn about it and you don't try and resist it, it becomes disgusting. So I don't know if any of you had the experience, you know, if next time you're eating your bread, um, really, you know, taste it, chew it, read the label and start to wonder why you're eating all those emulsifiers. You know what, you know, you just reminded me of something and just for like a little bit of context, because this is, I've, my relationship to nutrition has shifted pretty drastically over the last 12 months. Um, So I live with cystic fibrosis and uh, my entire life, 35 years of my life, I have been told um, in terms of diet, it is imperative that you have a high calorie, high fat diet. And even in conversations with like the CF clinic, my dietitian, you know, talking about like, well, you know, is it bad for me to eat a Big Mac? And they're like, well, I mean, if that if that's the way you're getting your calories and your fat, like do it. Just do that. Like add fucking peanut butter to everything. Add mayo to everything. Like just it. It doesn't matter. We don't care how you're getting it. It's more important that you get it like for your health. The most important part is about like getting enough calories, getting enough fat. So a year ago, and that's or, what, and to, and honestly, that's what I learned at medical right, school. Sure. I, I treat a small number of. I don't treat patients uh, CF, obviously, but we we see patients who have uh, infections as a result. So yeah, yes. what you're saying is very much like that's the dogma. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, so, but here's the interesting part. I, I, I about a year ago, or or maybe just over a year ago, a new drug comes out. It's like a miracle drug for CF patients called Trikafta. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily, it's not a cure, but it, but it's treating CF at the source. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's unfolding that malfolded protein so that the CF TR gene mal- malfunction is like not really as present as it would be. And so very quickly after I started taking Trikafta within the span of, I'd say a month, I started noticing, I didn't change my diet. I just kept eating like a fucking CF patient. But very quickly, I started to notice my body changing because my body was no longer suffering from malabsorption because of the trikafta. And I started packing on weight. 
at an incredibly fast rate. Very fast. Like 30 really? pounds, 30 pounds in a few months. Brian, to the point that you that you noticed it in Jeremy. Oh yeah. 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 And and I noticed it in just having going to like going to tie my shoes all of a sudden was like hard for me. And it sparked something in me. And and look, I I I was very full like that addiction to to for context, you to, were incredibly thin. I yeah, I was I was very yeah, I was very mm-hmm. like very very small guy. And um, you for context, you were showing your your belly to us every day. So yeah. <laughs> we definitely noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was I was scared. I was like, what's going on? Um, but in that in that shift, in like it just it by seeing my body shift so rapidly and so like so unexpectedly, it completely changed the way that I viewed what I was putting into my body. Um, so I, and I feel like in a similar way to the way that you viewed this, like this thing that you love, these wings with disgust, I, I almost have, it's not quite disgust, but it's like enough of a shift where to remind I'm no longer, I don't feel like that, that like insatiating addiction to this thing. And I feel like it came from just physically altering my body so quickly. Like it was like a slap across the face. Like it really shocked me. Mm. Um, and the the and so where did you end up what what did you think or what did you think had happened and how has it changed what you eat now well it or I has mean, it? It, it, it oh it most certainly has yeah like it it changed my my i mean my entire lifestyle sort of changed like in terms of fitness yeah. and in terms of diet um but i knew what was happening i knew it was because you know when i when i started the drug they were like hey you're you're likely not going to um, you're likely going to start putting on weight. Your food, you know, your your the the diet that you've been used to eating is it. You might want to like roll that back, which I I didn't at first. I should have listened to them right off the bat. Um, but when it when I started to like when my body started to change like that, I was like, okay, I gotta like, I'm now I'm now way more cognizant of sugars. Like if I'm looking at something mm. to to ingest it, I'm the first thing I do is look at the carbohydrates and the sugars, and I'm like, what. It like, is this high in sugar? I'm always, I'm constantly thinking about that. Whereas before I didn't give a shit. Like I was just, if it was greasy and it was fatty. Yeah. I want it. Like put it in me. And it was, it was a great excuse to eat. Like a, Jeremy, you know, how, how old are you? Do you mind? Is that a, I'm, is that a, yeah, I don't no, think. yeah, I'm 35, 35. So to some extent, have you now become a more, uh, normal, such an awful word typical uh maybe i do mean normal in this context of you've become more like a 35 year old who isn't living with cf in the, you, you you know we're all i mean 35 is when we all suddenly go oh, oh, yeah tying, i'm just like I'm, the sh- I'm an the old, old man shoelaces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's it like like it, it, cf was i mean the, the one good thing that came from cf is that it gave me a wicked set of abs and I didn't have to give a shit about what I put into my body. And then all of a sudden this this drug shifts my body to a point where I I I that those those were no longer things that were afforded to me. Also no. like your sleep and like you know, Jared's <laughs> yeah. going to the gym five days a week now too, and like totally, oh, I totally, totally changed, changed my life. But, like it was so. it was wild. Chris, you mentioned the dogma that that is present in medical school training around um, around when Jer mentioned the, like, you know, who cares where the calories come from as long as you get the calories because you need the calories because you have malabsorption and this is what you need to do. Um, so, so, for, so, again, kind of using Jer, I guess, as an example. Now, Jer, let's think about Jer before Trikafta. He's malnourished or malabs- mal- he has malabsorption. He, he doesn't uptake his nutrients um, typically. How, 
So if he's eating these ultra processed foods, how is the dogma of like what we what you might receive in in your medical training, um, going against so, what 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 maybe he should have been paying more attention to in terms of like the food he he was eating? These questions are so hard. Like I was, you set this all up as oh, we're not scientists. We don't know what we're talking about. No, I get it. This is like it's it's six p.m. here. Well, we've talked to a lot of scientists. Okay. <laughs> it's good. It's good. No, this is very this is very arduous. No, uh, so l- let me try and broaden the answer out somewhat because I th- I think um, sure. your question speaks to a concern that everyone should have, which mm. is. Um, if people who live with overweight and obesity, which is now most of us in Canada, the States and the UK, um, uh, we're all concerned about the ultra-processed uh, food and its ability to drive weight gain. What's really clear from the epidemiological research is ultra-processed food is, an, is independent of its ability to drive excess weight. Um, it's also associated with dementia, anxiety, depression, uh, metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, um, and early death from all causes and uh, and early death from cancer, including breast cancer and bowel cancer. So um, even if you don't gain weight, the food is harming us in lots of other ways. And the intriguing thing, what you're making me realize is we're probably telling a lot of, a lot of patients, not just CF patients, to eat crap that's full of calories when really there are good calories that would be full of other yeah. Um, uh, nutrients and 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 would have lots of other benefits that you weren't really eating because you felt like you had a license. Well, you you did have a license to whatever you right. want. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want you know, CF is is a, a ticklish example, and I shouldn't talk because I'm not I'm not an expert in that area. But there are lots of patients I think who are in a similar situation where, um, I mean, cancer patients have a huge metabolic demand, and I think the oncologists have actually been ahead of the curve in terms of going. I mean, I. I got a mail message from a colleague the other day going, what do you think about my hematology oncology patients, my patients with leukemias, lymphomas, and all these emulsifiers and the gut inflammation they drive? And I was like, we don't have any research, but it would if I had um, a fast-growing hematological malignancy, I would do what I am doing, which is not eat ultra-processed food anyway. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think it sort of speaks to the wider problem. In, in the muddy, murky way we have of discussing everything and the shame and the the difficulty of talking about what we eat, um, we should remember that even if you live at a health, supposedly healthy weight, you're still suffering from all the other effects. And right. and I don't know if it's in, I mean, you 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 um, Taylor, you kind of hinted at, at being interested in this. Is it, it, there are a number of ways that we think that ultra processed food harm the body beyond uh, just forcing us to gain weight. So there's mm-hmm. there's the softness. The energy density is important. The food has to have a long shelf life. And the, the reason the burgers don't rot, and there are all those internet sites where they've got a burger burger from McDonald's that's 10 years old. It's not because of preservatives. McDonald's burgers don't have any preservatives in them. It's because it's bone dry. This food has no water content. Mm. So bugs can't grow without water. So it leads to a long shelf life. But it also, water is, if you eat a steak, it's full of water. It's wet. If you eat banana, broccoli, you know, but, uh, milk, butter, whatever, it's all full of water. So ultra-processed food is bone dry. That means it's energy dense. The softness and the and the, and the dryness means that you have this, this calorie intake. The emulsifiers, we think, act as detergents almost. So detergents, your, your dishwasher detergent is an emulsifier. That's what emulsifiers do. They combine fat and water. Yeah. And so we think they are in a simple way scrubbing out your gut. And we wow. see with 
very normal levels of the emulsifiers that we all eat in our diet. Um, if we do the studies in rats and including in people, we see huge changes in the microbiome in the, in the friendly bugs that live inside us. Wow. And um, is that sort of like mechanistically what could be driving some of like the depression and anxiety symptoms? Because the microbiome has like a pretty has a pretty close connection with so, the way that our brain functions. That one of the things writing the book is if you read the emulsifier research, which is all published, by the way, in Nature and Cell. I mean, these are these are really good, big research groups at respected institutions. This isn't niche stuff. Um, all of modern disease and, di and dietary problems can be explained using emulsifiers. Then you speak mm. to the flavor enhancement people and the same thing is true. Then you speak to the, you know, if we look at other aspects of the processing, the same thing is true. The other additives, the same thing is true. So it's, it's not one dimension of this food. Every single aspect of this food is driving all these different medical problems. And that makes sense that there's probably a fairly common set of pathways, perhaps through effects on the microbiome, perhaps through inflammatory effects, mm. where, you know, dementia is an inflammatory disease, just like type 2 diabetes, just like Crohn's, just like depression. There's a model of depression that says it's primarily inflammatory. And so, mm. yes, it, it whether the inflammation is causing depression or, or inversely, it's not surprising that it would be, in fact, it would be very odd if a food that caused strokes and heart attacks didn't also cause depression, dementia, and early death. And, mm -hmm. and sure enough, it does mm -hmm. because, because they all have a common pathway. I'm, I'm dying to know because this like, I mean, immediately I'm thinking, oh, I need to change my diet and make sure that I'm eating quote unquote cleaner. But then I always think of this problem, which I know that you've talked a lot about, which is the cost associated with mm -hmm. um, eating like raw, organic, cleaner foods or, or avoiding ultra processed foods. Um, one of the challenges that I see is that ultra processed foods, one of the reasons why they, they, they make them this way, these big transnational companies is because it's cheaper and they can sell them for less. And therefore it seems at times like it's the only option, especially for, um, low income people is that yeah is i mean it, it is the only option so in canada and in the in north america you know i go i'm a canadian by the way i have a canadian passport i'm a canadian citizen i don't sound like it. my parents are canadian so i go every summer when i go to north america the food deserts that i encounter are not we don't really have them in the uk so there are places you can live where you simply have no access to any quantity of fresh fruit or vegetables yeah. or real food the only available food is ultra it's all got additives um one of the reasons I am not part of the, and it's stupid, really. I I, I resist this very hard. Is 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 I'm not setting up a, a podcast or a lifestyle wellness institute or a cult or a or a, an app that is all about how to quit UPF because um, it's just so hard for people. That feels really unjust, and it will only drive stigma. Um, so it's particularly, you know, indigenous communities in Canada will be extremely severely affected in, in the Arctic 100%. where I've worked yeah. and, um, you know, people of color. So, it's, it, you know, it's, and it's the cheapest food made with the worst additives and particularly in America where the additives are so unregulated. Uh, it's those families that are affected. So to some extent, your podcast demographic, I suspect, is an extremely health literate, educated perhaps not wealthy, but, but have enough resources to, to go and buy fancy bread or, or, or make it themselves. Um, they may already be doing all this. And the, the, the real challenge is trying to bring about policies that make actual food mm. cheaper 
and 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 turn the boat around on on food culture without making everyone feel terrible because that's the other thing is people are stuck so i'm i'm in the 1950s going i think we should all stop smoking and it's like well i i would but all my co-workers are smoking the patients with my office smoking you three would all be smoking we'd all be sitting here smoking away so um that now i think it will happen quicker I think the public are ready for the. I think the public are quite accepting of the idea that the food companies should be regulated somewhat like the tobacco companies. Mm-hmm. I think people feel gaslit by their food. I think people have been struggling since the early 80s with this, this pandemic of weight gain and realizing that they aren't really in control of what they eat and it, they're very confused. So I, I think people are up for this, but um, we are ten to fifteen years away from meaningful regulation. And, I think. And like, what what are you know when when you because when you say that when I when I hear anything that has to do with like it's the regulation that needs to change, it's the policymakers that need to change. I always go, well, fuck, what am I going to do? Like, I can't, I can't do that. I can't change their minds. I can't have an effect. So, to that, to that, you know. To that point, but to our some listeners that are listening, like, what is it that what is it that we can do? What can I do? It can I do more than I think I can? You no. Know, so you well, th- to some extent, you don't. I don't think you need. I mean, you are doing that, right? You're you're running a podcast with a significant public health benefit that is all about destigmatizing illness. Like you are doing your thing. You can't do everything, and mm. you put me on it, and I'm so I'll. I'll do the heavy lifting on on that one, and so will lots of other people. I mean, the UNICEF, my colleagues at World Health Organization, this big group of people who this is their sort of life's work, and we know it will go beyond our lifetimes. Um, in terms of individual listeners, my invitation to them would be to consider their relationship with the food when they read a science study, when they read an article in the newspaper, when they hear a scientist quoted. Ask who paid that person. So many of the scientists that you will hear on the news are simply funded by Nestle, Mars, Danone, Cargill, ADM, Pepsi, Lay, Heinz, uh, Kraft Heinz. You know, these are the companies that fund all the science. Mm. So being skeptical about where your information comes from and sort of being part of a movement that doesn't shame and stigmatize everyone else. But you can ask your your kids' school to stop serving ultra-processed food. You know, that that would Mm. be... A little thing that it, you know, parents parents nagging schools to change is a big a big change. Yeah. And but you need we need to vote for, as I see it. And I'm not I don't want to make this party political. I'm not an anti capitalist or a Marxist. Um, but we can either have big government regulating transnational corporations, or we can have our lives ruled by them. And we elect our governments and we don't elect the corporations. So in the UK, there's a lot of anxiety about this sort of nanny statism stuff or government overreach. I actually think the governments, you know, on the right are misjudging this and people would like to be protected. And what I propose in the book is pretty straightforward. I, I wouldn't ban this food. I wouldn't replace all the molecules in it. I'd put warnings on it. I'd limit the marketing, especially to children. And in the UK particularly, but I know this is the case in the States as well, the charities and the NGOs that inform policy and the scientists that inform policy are entirely paid by the food company. Our royal colleges of health are paid for by food companies. You know, the the conflicts of interest run very deep. So changing our cultural relationship so that doctors don't accept money from the food industry, that that is more or less the most important thing. The, the, The food industry aren't the baddies in my book. The doctors and the scientists who take their money and spread the misinformation—they are—they are the baddies. Yeah. Mm. Do you um? The one question, one last question I have there, Jared, is: 
do do you think and and maybe this is maybe this question is maybe out of your wheelhouse but do you think that there is a way? But like that- all doctors, I'll give it a bash, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that is it. why we appreciate you. Um, so is there is there a way through regulation that we might be able to put parameters on... So, oh, sorry. So the context of this is because you, when we were talking about the ice cream and how in the formulation of the ice cream, one of the benefits of using a a synthetic emulsifier rather than an egg is not only cost, but because it, it, it circumnavigates the, the risk of salmonella poisoning, et cetera. Is there a way in which we could formulate these things, but formulate them with parameters that are implemented uh. through regulation that put, that put, that's put some type of guardrails on formulating them in a way that is going to be damaging to our health, but are still circumnavigating some of the, some of maybe the cost or the or the the the, the illness or or contamination issues that we face. This is this is my favorite question because you're you are um, proposing this idea that the food industry are very very enthusiastic about it. So they're saying, um, look, if the food's too soft, we'll make it chewy. If the food is too energy dense, we'll add water back in. We'll make it less energy dense. If there's not enough fiber, we can add fiber. If it's damaging the microbiome, we'll add probiotics and prebiotics and metabiotics. Um, if it's lacking phyt- phytonutrients, we'll extract them from plants and inject them back in. We can solve any problem. Now, remember that the reason we got to ultra-processed food or, or where we are with it at the moment is because of what we call reformulation. So the fat, when fat was a problem, the fat was taken out of yogurt and replaced with modified maize starch. Uh, when sugar was a problem, we replaced it with artificial sweeteners. Now, the World Health Organization last week, but it was earlier this week, released their, their formal statement on artificial sweeteners that they are not associated with any health benefit um, compared to sugar. Mm. So reformulation doesn't work historically. The best example is the artificial sweeteners. If artificial sweeteners, they are the ultimate example of what you are proposing, right? We know that sugar's bad. It drives weight gain. It rots teeth. It drives inflammation. Artificial sweeteners have no calories. And they are, for most people, they're a perfect replacement. And yet they don't lead to weight loss. They may increase risk of metabolic disease. Um, uh, They don't even seem to help tooth decay. So for some reason, that specific example has failed. The reason I think most of these proposals will fail is because of the purpose of the food. So as we said with the bread, it's not soft by accident. They can make the bread chewy and people won't buy it. People buy chewy bread, sourdough bread, because they have an idea of it being healthful and life-giving and you can sort of learn to like the chewiness. But making your soft supermarket bread chewy it's not going to sell. It won't survive in the marketplace. Removing all the salt, it won't survive in the marketplace. Replacing the emulsifiers, it just drives up the cost. So what you're proposing really is almost hyper-processed food. It's like, could we do mm. even more processed? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And sure, we, you know what? We could, and maybe it'll work, and maybe someone will crack the code for some products. It seems unlikely to me because that isn't the purpose of why this food is made. And why would we bother when we have the solution growing in fields, <laughs> growing on animals, yeah. you know, we know the food that gives health and life. And the, the real problem is that a walnut or a fish or a mango, they're incredibly complex. They're a three-dimensional matrix of extracellular protein with very, very specific chemical bonds between all the molecules. 
um, and they they can't really be synthesized. When we when we when we ex- when we try and extract the goodness from those things, it can't be done. So as an example, we know that walnuts are good for us. Oily fish is good for us. I chose those for a reason. The Mediterranean diet, as originally conceived, is good for us. We have never been able to extract any single molecule from any food in history that confers a health benefit on a healthy person. Mm. Fish oil isn't good for us. Walnut oil isn't good for us. Vitamins aren't good. The vitamins are good for us if we're deficient. But in healthy people, vitamins have no benefit. So food is really, really good for us. Synthetic food, no matter how sophisticated we are, is a very, very, very poor replica of the complexity of food, which we, I mean, we started this podcast going, we we have failed to understand nutritionally that an apple has a three-dimensional structure mm. and we barely understand the importance of that. Mm. So the odds of a food company being able to engineer healthy bread de novo seems to me to be very unlikely. That was figured out by women in huts 150,000 years ago and, and mm. there's no need to reinvent that wheel. Is that, am I, is that persuasive? It's, it's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, I, yeah. going down that track of going like, Let's just engineer our way out of the engineering problem that we've already made for ourselves. Let's put mirrors in the atmosphere that reflect the sun's rays away and then we'll solve global warming. Right. 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 It's it's technocratic um, solutions that as long as the, you know, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. As long as the incentive is uh, financialized growth, uh, we will only see a, a food that drives that growth. Yeah. And the companies the companies also propose they are good partners in change. And what, a piece of work I'm doing with some incredible scientists in Australia who are a mixture of economists and uh, nutritionists is that we can show that these companies only care about their shareholders. So they increasingly behave like banks. So we think of them as supplying food. Not really. They're financial institutions that specialize in food, but they do a lot of buying of cheap debt, paying it as dividends to shareholders. They do share buybacks to boost boost equity prices. Um, They do commodity future trading on on their crops. They they make their money through the banking of food, not really through supplying nourishment to us. So they propose themselves as partners in the struggle. Well, we we will fund public health programs. We'll, We'll do all this they are very unsuitable partners because they they cannot com- care about anyone but their owners mm-hmm. and i spoke to lots of people i spoke to someone at blackrock b- biggest asset manager in the world mm-hmm. or, you know, one of the biggest and they just said you know a company like danon or nestle or mcdonald's or coke they're not in charge of their business model so the asset managers control you know vanguard or blackrock will own five six seven percent of each of those companies as an approximation and if those companies stop making money, the CEO and the board get fired and replaced with people who do make money. Yeah. So the companies are trapped. You know, this is this is the way corporations work. And that's why governments have to step in and, and require them to do different things. Mm-hmm. Well, folks, again, ultra processed people, why we can't stop eating food that isn't food. Dr. Chris Van Tullikin, this has been uh, an absolutely amazing conversation. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat with us. How can people find you? How can people stay up to date with the work that you're doing? Oh, I'm at doctor, doctor, the whole word, like D-O-C-T, however you spell doctor, <laughs> Chris. I'm at Dr. Chris VT on Twitter. Um, and that's probably the best way to find me. Amazing. Chris, thank you so much. This has been a real treat. It's been such a treat. You've really asked some of the most 
uh, probing questions. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And, and thanks very much for having me on. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know? Tell someone that you love. Tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.